Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chats with Kat here on the Voice of Adoptee podcast. I hope everyone's having a great week. I'm your host, Kat. I would like all of our listeners to grab a cup of coffee, tea, or your favorite beverage, settle in and relax while listening to this episode. Get cozy. I'm currently here with Melissa. She's a writer and she channels the power of positivity in order to live a more fulfilling life. So welcome, Melissa. Briefly introduce us to yourself. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for having me. And I am Melissa Miller. I live in Southeast Florida, even though I grew up on the West Coast. I grew up in Oregon and spent 10 years in California. So still a big change. We've been here for a few years and we have five children and two of them were recently adopted a couple years ago, a sibling set. And yeah, we're just uh, loving raising our kids here and grateful to be on this podcast today. So tell me a little bit more about your particular adoption story. Let's talk about that. Let's dive into it. You want to know about like how I was adopted or how we adopted children? We're going to, we're going to touch on both, but first let's start with you. Okay. Yeah. uh, So I grew up, my parents got divorced when I was younger and uh, I stayed with my mom. And so my mom took the divorce really hard and she, you know, went down a really dark path and eventually just got involved in with the wrong people and became addicted to various substances. And so at age 14, we had a a pretty big falling out one day and I just ran away from home because it was getting to be abusive. It was getting to be where I just couldn't stay there and do homework. And there was just so much going on in the house. And, and I, I mean, I was just such a timid child and I was such a rule follower. It was such a big deal for me to like make that decision to, to run. And I knew exactly where to go. My best friend's family had just been like a second family to me and they were always taking me in and feeding me meals and just being so sweet and cheering me on whenever I would, you know, get a good grade on a test or anything. They were just so sweet. And so that day I I ran to her house and, and then because of the fact that my best friend's mom was actually a registered foster parent. It made it really easy for the police to kind of gather evidence. My mom admitted to some of the ways that she was abusive. And so they just really seamlessly like were able to move me over to my best friend's family's house. And, and so we never did the paperwork. I was emancipated at 17. I was like me, myself and I super independent. And so it really just was like this gradual, like your family and Eventually, I think by the time I went to college, I was calling her mom officially and she was showing up for the mother daughter things at my college. And my best friend, we just now, she's my sister. She's auntie to my kids. You know, Jenna, her mom is nanny to my kids. And so they're they're family. And so, you know, I think for those of us who have this unconventional family situation, I think it's so much more than blood or paperwork, you know? So, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. My biological mom, she did end up passing away when I was 17. And so she, you know, continued to get involved with the wrong people and really, really tragic story of how she, she died. And it was really sudden. I'm really grateful that you had such a positive support system. I feel like maybe there's other adoptees or other just individuals in general who don't necessarily have that. So I'm very grateful for that for you. 
And I can see just from your experience, how it kind of propelled you into such a positive mindset, especially like on your Instagram. We're going to go back for a second. I want to talk about your journey. Here, I'm, I'm always known as cat on a journey. And I always say that through life, we never stop being on a journey from who we were to who we are now and to where we want to go or who we want to become. So talk to me a little bit about the feelings, the thoughts, the emotions um, in the beginning of your journey when you were living at home in that sort of volatile situation where you knew it, it just wasn't right. It wasn't what you wanted from your life. So yeah, what was, what was that? It's really hard to live with someone with an addiction because at least in my situation, you never really know what to expect. It depends on what drug they're on. It depends on if they're crashing or if they're, you know, spiking. Like it just, I never, I got to the point where I just, I didn't recognize my mom anymore and I didn't know what to expect. And so, you know, I think we talk a lot in the adoption world about your attachment, you know, your attachment person. And so to have that, those mixed messages of, this is supposed to be the person that is loving me and raising me and taking care of me. And yet she can't even take care of herself. And the things that she's saying to me and doing to me, you know, that's not her at her core. And I think in time, you know, as I matured, I think I was able to see that, that it was really the addiction that had taken over. And that's not who she is at her core. And that's not the memories that I have from her from when I was a young girl. And so I think that you know, I, I think the hardest part was that I still had a younger sister there and to leave her and just like not feel very helpless. Like I wish that I could help her and I wish that I could find her a way out. But eventually she actually did end up, you know, getting unofficially adopted by my best friend's family too. And so they ended up taking her in eventually. And so she calls, you know, Jenna mom as well. And, and so I'm really thankful for that family. And I, I think that, you know, a lot of people, you know, especially in my situation, I've obviously been influenced by adoption. My husband was adopted. We adopted children. I thought for sure I would be an adoption advocate, but I think I don't like that language because so many people in my life didn't impacted me, impacted my kids and who weren't their adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an official adoption. And I think I'm just like a kids from hard places advocate. Like, whatever you can do to like show up in the life of a kid from a hard place. Like that's what I'm cheering on because not everyone, you know, it's not everyone's in the right situation to adopt. So something I find is that when, when someone, it doesn't matter if you're adopted or not, but I'll speak from the perspective naturally of an adopted child. Cause I myself am also adopted. I was adopted from Russia. I always for me, my mentality. And I feel you maybe share the same mentality where it's like, I went through something hard. I don't want other people going through what I went through. It's kind of like you, you want to be the light or, you know, the helper in a time of difficulty in a time of darkness for other people so that they can get through it. So were there ever times that you felt alone during this whole process of living with your mom and, and things like that, your biological mother, like, Walk me through some of those personal emotions that you felt. Um, you know, was there a, a, a sense of maybe feeling alone, questioning yourself, you know, questioning, like how, part two of the question, I guess, would be, how did you come to realize that you wanted something different through the emotions that you felt? 
Yeah, I did feel very alone. I felt like it would be embarrassing for me to share what was really going on at home. And there were moments when kids at school, somebody would give me a ride and drop me off and there'd be something going on that was really embarrassing. There was moments I couldn't hide it, but it was really hard to to feel like I I wasn't proud of where I came from. I wasn't proud of my family. I, I felt like I had something to hide. And I just wanted, I remember thinking so many times, I wish I had a normal mom. I wish I had a normal, like khaki wearing, soccer mom, like minivan driving normal mom. And, you know, no mom is normal, right? We're all different. We're all so different. But I had this picture in my mind of like the kind of mom that I wanted. And I, you know, was just so like hurt that she chose this path that, you know, was so harmful. Definitely, there was some dark, dark moments for sure. But I feel like, school became an escape for me. I feel like I got involved so many different extracurricular activities. And I just wanted to be away from home as much as possible. And because home wasn't the safe place like it is for most people. And so I was diving into sports and diving into, you know, academics. And that became sort of my way of like measuring my way out, you know, like I could measure the grades. And I, there was this board in the cafeteria that would have all the people with the best grades on it. And I look, saw that board. And the minute I saw that board, I was like, I'm going to get on that board. Like, I don't know. I guess it just, I, I think that I still to this day have to check myself because I am very driven in that way. And I think I want to just make sure that because of that time in my life, like my drive and my ambition and all of that was to me, like carving this path out. Like I will not turn out like her. I will not turn out like her. I will not turn out like her. And so I, I still keep that in check to this day to make sure that that's not just a trauma response um, because I know how I was feeling at that time. And I just wanted, I wanted to find a way out and I wanted to find a way to a different home. But when you're so young, it's hard to see how that's possible. I agree. I mean, for me, it was the exact same thing. I, I loved school. I didn't always do well at it, but I loved it because I was away from my situation at my house. My mom wasn't always like a bad quote unquote person. For, for me, I just, when you're so, it's kind of like you said, uh, when you are so young, you don't necessarily understand what is going on. And it's not until you're older that you can look back and reflect and say, I see what happened and how am I going to use it to get to where I want to go sort of thing. I think it's really beautiful and empowering that you saw what was going on at your house and you said, I want to make something better of myself. I deserve better. How can we as adoptees, how can other adoptees work on themselves to get to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is so hard because so many of us are longing for that attachment person, right? Hold my hand and guide me there, take me there. And so to have to, to feel like you have to do it by yourself is a really painful thing. We want that guide. We want that, that person in our life to just, just help show us the way. I just remember, like I said, I was emancipated. I wouldn't even ask for help carrying groceries from the car. I had my first job at 14. I paid for everything myself. I did all the college applications myself and put myself through college. And like, I just, I think that, you know, like I said, I'm a kids from hard places advocate, because if I would have had somebody, you know, like Jenna, maybe a little bit sooner in my life to say like, I'm, I'm here for you and I'm cheering you on. Like, it just means the world, you know, to those of us who, who do feel alone. But I would say for me, obviously in in college, I know you, you said you've been on my Instagram, so, you know, I'm a person of faith. And so that was something that I really dove into in college. And that really helped me because we're all longing, like I said, for that attachment person 
we can have that in God, like we can have that in our faith. And so for me, that was a a huge strength and a huge comfort that no matter if anyone rejected me or abandoned me, because we're all going to carry those fears with us, right? If we've been through some, some trauma in that area, but no matter, you know, what happens or who rejects me, like to, to have that person in my life, to have a heavenly father in my life became such a huge, huge foundation and huge source of source of comfort for me. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. I myself am very spiritual. I believe in the universe. I believe in things that you can't necessarily see or understand. And I just, I feel like no matter what, it's always going to work out the way it was supposed to, the way it was meant to. So when you talk about attachment styles, if we go back, can you explain to me or talk about the different attachment styles that maybe you feel you faced while going through your your journey in the beginning? Because we're going to try to go through each section. Um, so right now I want to focus on the beginning, the beginning stages of who Melissa became. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, I did have a really good upbringing and I had a good childhood. And when my parents were married and my mom was sober, I have so many good memories, memories of her staying in the hospital with me when I had croup and stroking my forehead and just telling me like I was, I could be anything that I wanted to be. And she, she was a good mom in those early years. And, and so I'm thankful because I do think I had a good, healthy attachment there for a while in the early years. And it wasn't until later that that attachment became broken. And and I would say very, like a very anxious, uh, you know, attachment. And like I said, the unpredictability of her addiction made that very confusing. And so I, I think in the beginning, I am very grateful because I know for a lot of adoptees, I know that they have to do work later in life to unravel things that they might not even consciously remember you know, those, those wounds from such an early, early age. And I think that most of my wounds were when I was older. And I think I, when you're older, you can, you can't process it perfectly as a teenager, but you can process it better than when you're two or when you're three. And those like very first memories are forming of like who this person is in your life, or if you're going to be safe, or if you're loved, you know? So I'm thankful that in the early years, I didn't have any of memories of you know abuse or neglect or anything but being loved and so i think that that definitely was helpful you know later on to be able to at least have that foundation because obviously i'm an adoptive mom now and i can see that for my kids there's some things that are going to take a lot of time to work through because they happen very early on there's some things that they're going to need to continue to work through in therapy and continue to have reiterated that you're safe now, you're loved now, you know, because they were formed at such an early age and such early memories that I think for me, I am thankful that I, that I at least had like a good solid foundation of like knowing who my mom was at her best so that I didn't later define her at her worst, because I think that would have been really hard to only have the memory, the bad memories. And I think that's unfortunate for my sister, who's you know, a lot younger than me, we're nine years apart, that she only remembers my mom when she wasn't so great. She wasn't at her best. She was involved in her addiction. I think she's had a harder road to walk than I have because because of that, because she doesn't have the foundation of the good memories of being loved and cared for uh, in the early years. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. I mean, even for me, I being adopted from the orphanage all the way in Russia, I have very little memories, no memories of my biological mom. And I have very few memories of my adoptive mom when she was, before she had changed. 
And it's interesting because the way I look at my situation is I also understand addiction, not through the perspective of my mom, but the perspective of somebody else that she adopted. Another child that she adopted turned very heavily to addiction. And I witnessed firsthand how that really changes people, changes the people who are around you, and it really affects them. And how did that specifically affect you growing up? I mean, obviously, I know you said that you kind of looked at that and you, you saw it as a way to be, to influence yourself and say, this is something that I don't want to do. I want to be better. Did it change your perspectives about other people at all? Did you have sort of like this uh, a ability to trust others? Was it more difficult for you to trust other people based off of what you've been going through at home? I guess is more my question. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I feel like I sort of glossed over a a part of my story that I think is worth mentioning because when I was about 12 or 13, real young, I did go through probably like an eight month period of experimenting with drugs, getting involved with the wrong crowd. I think I was just trying to find my way. And some of that was offered to me by my mom. So that was another confusing thing of like, this is supposed to be bad, but like mom's giving it to me. And so I went through this phase and it's, it's so funny, the little phrases and things that stick out to us and that end up changing our life that we don't even realize are going to at the time. But I remember having a conversation with my grandma and she said, you know, you, you have to get good grades in high school because if you want to go to college, then you need to get good grades in high school. Like I know you're in middle school now and you're not thinking about it, but just remember my words, get good grades in high school. None of us went to college and you should go to college. And for some reason, just her words just stuck out to me and they shaped me. And it was like, thankfully I didn't get addicted when I was like super young, 12 and 13 to any, some of the drugs were really hardcore drugs. It was very scary looking back to think of what I was dabbling in and involved with. But for some reason, my grandma's words stuck out to me. Like when I get to high school, I'm going to change. When I get to high school, like I'm going to be on that different path. I'm going to get good grades. And so it was just like really weird how much that little statement that she said ended up carving out a path for me in high school where I was like, I'm going to be in a different crowd. I'm going to do things different and I'm going to get good grades. I'm going to go to college like grandma said. And so I, I think that it was very, you know, it's always in middle school, right? You're trying to figure out who you are, you're trying to figure out what you believe, you're trying to figure out what crowd you fit into. Like that's just like normal part of the process, but even more confusing when my mom has changed so drastically from the person that I knew her to be. And I think that it has affected me um, and my ability to trust. I definitely feel like there, I've done a lot of work in therapy since then. I've done a lot of different modalities of therapy. So I'm in a good place now, but I I do feel like throughout my life, having a really hard time trusting that people were going to be really steady and solid in my life, always expecting the other shoe to drop or for them to change any change in another individual. If someone would change like that to me was the worst thing because change like for my mom, it led to her death. Like it literally led to her, her dying, getting involved with the wrong crowd, getting involved with drugs. Um, you know, it was a high speed police chase situation. And she, you know, either jumped or was pushed out of the car. We don't know to this day by the drug dealer. And so it was just like such a tragic situation that is so embedded at the age of 17. And so to me, like to have, like, if somebody changes, in in my life, like that, 
equals death. Like that's the worst thing they could do is change. And so I think that I've had to learn to allow people to go through their own processes and change their mind. And, you know, they're not going to be the same at, you know, 40 years old that they were at 20 years old. And it's okay. It doesn't mean they're going to die or that something terrible is going to happen. So yeah, it definitely affected my ability to trust people and, and trust that, you know, hard weren't right around the corner or the other shoe wasn't going to drop, right? You know? Right. Right. I actually, I think that's really interesting because it's kind of like you, you take this through your experience. It's kind of like something that is so basic, like being able to trust another person, I think is a basic human fundamental. It's a part of just the human existence. And to know that for you, it was such an extreme thing where, and I understand this because it's kind of like, for me, I've always looked at myself where I'm like, I'm either fire or water. And when I'm neither, I'm air. And those are all different sorts of extreme. So to look at trust and to look at another person and it's kind of like, oh, they did one thing that makes me not trust them. And it's such an extreme reaction. And for me, I'm very impressed that you can build yourself back up from that. I had a very difficult time with trusting other people and kind of being like, well, you're going to leave me anyway, so I can't trust you. You know, yeah. um, you're, if, if you change or if you do one thing, it's kind of like my good opinion once lost, lost forever. And that's it. Done. Done deal for, for me. And it took a very long time to slowly get to that point where I felt like I could trust people. And I mean, again, the, the trauma that you've, you've gone through and, and knowing like, that's how it all happened. I'm just really proud of you that you were able to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and be like, this is, I want a different life. I want a different life for myself. Also in terms of your grandmother, what I've noticed is when we have someone who doesn't necessarily support us, especially when it's a, a parental figure. Like as children, we put such emphasis on the parental figure that they are supposed to be the person that we look up to, that we trust, that we really rely on. And we're supposed to kind of emulate them. And once we realize that we should not, it, again, it's a very lonely sort of thing. And it's very difficult to kind of find your own footing. And I think the reasons why your grandmother's words really stand out in your mind is because perhaps she is the first person who showed you support. She is the first person who you, you maybe felt like you could trust because not only because she was being kind, but because she was really encouraging you and being your cheerleader and being like, no, Melissa, you got this. Like you can make something of yourself. Yeah, definitely. And I think she saw something in me that I could take, I could take the ball further than what they had been able to take it. Like she believed in me beyond what the family had, you know, been able to achieve at that point. Yeah. And I think that meant a lot. And those words, I, for some reason, just really stuck with me. Yeah. And that's great. That's really amazing. I'm just really happy that you had a support system. And I'm, I'm sure even through school, you know, different people that you met, although you couldn't trust them right away, I, I'm hoping that there was a sort of journey that you eventually were able to get to a point of trust with others. So I'm just really happy for you. <laughs> for many other adoptees, it takes much longer. Some people never get there. So if we continue on with your journey through your 20s and your 30s, you know, what was that like? Walk me through that. 
Yeah. So I met my call, my husband in college and he was adopted at birth. And so I was able to kind of share with him my story. And obviously we bonded over that and, you know, we're friends for a long time and then eventually fell in love and we got married after college. And I think that adoption was very normal in our language. You know, it was obviously he was adopted. All of his siblings were adopted from different families and uh, he was one of four. And so being able to kind of get to meet all of them, see how different they are, how different all of their backgrounds were. And then my, on my biological dad's side, my cousin was adopted from Korea and he is now an adoptive counselor in Korea and he helps other adoptees. And so, you know, I had that and then my own story and it just felt like for us, that was something that we had always eventually wanted to do. And so you know, we had three children biologically and we started the adoption process to, we were just thinking one child. And I think at the time we were very ignorant about the different paths of adoption. We were very ignorant about so many things, but we had made the decision to adopt overseas. And so it was going to be the Philippines and we had done all of the extensive paperwork and we were waiting for a match and waiting for a match. And year after year, I mean, one year turned into five years and we were still waiting. And when COVID happened, all the international borders, as you know, sh- you know, shut down travel, all of that. And so we were just thinking, well, how much longer is it going to be? I-, I feel like this is going to delay it even more when you're already thinking like, how much more could we possibly wait? And so we just started to reevaluate at that point. Like, what if there's maybe some local options? We had already, you know, spent the money to go that route. And through an adoption agency. And so it's hard to kind of feel like, oh, if we switch paths, like all that time and money is sort of wasted and we have to start all over. Mm-hmm. We didn't necessarily want or feel the need to, to adopt a baby. There are a lot of other parents that, you know, can't have children for one reason or another themselves and biologically. And so uh, we didn't want to, to sort of uh, cut in that line, so to speak, you know, like we, and we had already had three of our own you know, biologically. And so we were open to, to a little bit older children. And they always say to stay in birth order. So we were at least trying to do that. But right around the time we were just exploring, like, what, what should we do? Should we give up on this altogether? Maybe we'll become guardian litems or foster parents. Like we were just playing around with all different options. There was a mom from my kid's school and she had adopted from foster care and she still kept in touch with some of the, you know, people involved in you know, those adoptions, including a guardian litem. And there was a guardian litem who was really looking for a family for this sibling set. And she had been a part of their life for years. They'd been in foster care, you know, as long as we'd been waiting for adopt to adopt, they'd been in foster care for a really long time. And, but finally they were kind of getting to the, the place where the parental rights were about to be terminated. And so she was really advocating to try to keep these kids together because, you know, that, when your attachment figures and your parents have been, you know, robbed of you, uh, the best thing that they can do is, is still stay together and have each other as, you know, attachment, uh, an attachment that stays through the long haul. And so she was really, you know, just a bulldog for these kids. She's just an amazing person and was really trying to keep them together. And so uh, we got a text and they, you know, said that there was a local sibling set that was about to be adoptable. And were we interested? And so that was the the first step of many steps to switch paths and explore the idea of something we hadn't even thought about before. And 
it was a long road. Unfortunately, it was still a long road to get to them because they were outside of our county. They were only one county away, but they really like to keep them in the same school and all of that uh, stuff. And so I think what we were trying to, to help everyone see is that this we're not trying to just be another foster home. Like we are really serious about adopting these kids and and, you know, trying to help them see that we were we had been waiting for them, you know, just as long as they had been waiting for a family. And so uh, we had bought, I remember we got the green light, we bought stockings for them to hang up, you know, and with their names on them. And we were so excited. And then we got an email saying, you know, sorry, like, we can't too much, basically too much red tape with them being in a different county, like we can't make this happen. And my husband sent a letter and he just CC'd everyone that we had talked to and more and just was really advocating for them and for this to work out. And eventually, I think it was a few weeks later, um, it landed in the right person's lap and they just said, you know what, like, it'll be a little bit more work. We'll have to get, you know, there's social workers involved in Palm Beach County and in Martin County. And then we have to have another social worker liaison. And, you know, they were, they were willing to do the work to, to say, like, let's start to set up some meetings. And, and I think with the foster care, they try to keep the kids at, like in my situation, it was an easy transition, right? Because I already knew these people, they were already safe to me. And so I think in, in their minds, they were just trying to trying to find anybody that they could, that these kids already knew, you know, and, and, but they had been placed with other relatives that had returned them to foster care before they had been placed with people that they knew that just couldn't take both of them or didn't want both of them. And so at that point, they had to really look at their case file and say, like, we have exhausted all the resources of family and of friends and of people that they know. And there really isn't any other options for for these kids. And and the biological mom, you know, had passed away already. And then their biological father, he ended up passing away shortly after they came to live with us from a brain aneurysm. So they were really out of out of options. And I know that there are a lot of people who in the adoption space who are very hurt by adoption. And I totally understand that. And and they're advocating for these kids to stay with their birth parents. But in this situation, there was truly no other, there was no other options for them. Like they had been looking and they had tried and yeah. And there was just, there was no other option. So we felt like, even though it was like slightly out of birth order. So the youngest he's nine and, and he is our youngest. And, but the older one, she's two years older than our youngest. And so we had to set up some meetings, some weekend visits, some different things just to make sure, because a lot of people say like, you, you want to avoid like bullying situation. You want to avoid, you know, all these things. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we set up meetings and we just knew right away, like this was the right situation for them and for us. And there was no bullying that was going to be happening. Like her and my youngest daughter were just two peas in a pod. They both loved all things crafty. They just hit it off right away. And they still do. They're highly involved in ballet together to, to this day. And so they're, they're true sisters. And and everything that they, you know, they try to warn you about, it wasn't, it didn't apply to our situation. Like they just like really fit right in. And so yeah, we fostered them for six or seven months. And then the adoption was finalized over Zoom because it was kind of during the COVID uh, time. But yeah. So what was, so, okay. A few things as you're, as you're talking, I have a bunch of questions kind of running through my mind and I'm really listening to the story and it's, I'm really happy how it worked out. So a few things. One, 
what was for you? So for any anyone listening who is an adoptive parent looking to adopt, what was the most challenging part of your journey with adopting a child? What do you, what is something that you as an adoptive parent would like other adoptive parents to know? Well, there's challenges in terms of like beforehand, like it's a long wait, you know, in our situation it was a really long wait. I actually wrote a book about it because I just needed to process how do you how do you stay content when you're waiting for something for so long to happen? So it's called Restful Anticipation. It's a book about just the waiting process and how we can uh, continue to re- remain content when there's like a real strong desire of our heart that hasn't been fulfilled. And so that was something that was took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting to wait that long. I know that they say that, you know, you can, especially for international, you can wait a really long time, but I wasn't, I, I guess I just wasn't expecting that it would take that long. I, I got all the paperwork done fast. I just thought, um, you know, did my part. And so it'll, it'll happen fast. And so the waiting was, was definitely hard. But on the other side of it, I think that it's just a lot of change, you know, and it's not bad change, like, but even good change. I think it took me by surprise. Like this was something we were waiting for for so long, but I think even if it's a good change, especially with my background, right. Even if it's a good change, it can still really blindside you with the emotional weight of it. And I think that we were all, all of us, them too, they had to change schools. They're changing counties. They're changing so much about their life. They are getting to know these new people who are going to be their family. So I just think the change, the change, the adjusting to change, the accepting of the change, the accepting of the new norm, there's a new energy in your home, right? Like there is a lot of trauma to help them through. And so I think just like being able to get to that place where I was able to implement some really good rhythms that helped me kind of anchor myself during all that change. And then really just like trusting that I would in time find a new norm. Like it wasn't going to feel chaotic for forever, right? Just like trusting this is not permanent. Like this is just an adjustment period of change for everybody. And we will find our footing. Like we will find our rhythm. And, and we are now two years in, like at that place where I just feel like sometimes like I'll just hear my son's laugh and it just like brings such a like spark of joy in my heart that like we're in this place where I can just like sit and enjoy his laughter and feel like the dust has settled. Like we're in a really good place. And and I, yeah, I, I would say just, just the change, just, you know, being able to, to have your world turns upside down and their world turns upside down and just know that you will eventually gain solid ground again. So I think I always say that people are very afraid of things that they do not understand, things that they do not have control over. And I, I believe this is where faith or, you know, believing in something where because it's out of your hands and having that sort of trust that it's all going to work out really comes into play. And it's, it's, you know, we were talking about the theme of trust and how difficult it can be for adoptees, maybe for adoptees who turn into adoptive parents to be able to trust something that they know, they don't know how it's going to happen or how it's going to work out. You know, what advice do you have for adoptees who are either in this position themselves where they are looking to adopt and they have gone through a journey of being adopted, come from such a a tumultuous background or a difficult journey or a dark place, or, you know, have they've kind of gone through the dark forest and they've weaved and, and woven through it 
to where they are now? Like, what is your recommendation for, for them, for the adoptees? I think it's such a cool, wonderful thing that we get the opportunity to be for somebody else what we needed. You know, you of all people will know what you needed when you were a kid. And so now you, from that experience, you get to now speak to your adopted child and you get to give them what, what you know you needed. And who better, who is better equipped to be able to know that pain, to be able to know how to speak to that than you. And so it's, it's so wonderful that we're able to, like you said, be that light for other people. And so for me, you know, when their biological father died, it was this moment of them sitting on the bed and I had to break the news to them that he had a brain aneurysm. We knew that he wasn't going to be able to be in contact with them for a really long time because of his actions. He was not a safe person to be around, but they still, same with me. I still loved my mom, right? Even though she was, you know, not perfect and she had a lot of flaws and there was a lot of tension in our relationship. Like I still, I still loved her. She was my mom. And so to sit down on the bed with them and have to break the news to them that their bio father had passed. It was this moment where like everything within me knew that even though it's going to be a hard conversation, like I was made for this. Like I know what it's like to lose a parent. I know what it's like to walk through this pain. I know what it's like to have confusion around that person and their role in your life and you love them, but they hurt you. Like I just felt like in that moment, like with every fiber of my being, like this is what I was made for. Like I, there's no better person for this job than me. And to be able to sit with them and to be able to comfort them, to be able to share them the news, to be able to be able to, from experience, tell them that grief is not linear, right? It's going to pop up here and there. There are going to be days that are just going to be hard days. And that's okay. Like I'm here for you on those days. It might be completely unexpected. Sometimes grief feels like that unannounced house guest, you know, knocking on your door. You just didn't know they were, it was going to show up that day. Right. And so to be able to, from experience, tell them that those emotions are normal and you might feel like it's surreal right now. Like you can't even process this right now, but there will be some days in the future. It could be a few months from now. It could be a few weeks from now. It could be a few years from now where that grief will pop up and it is, I'm here for you and we're going to process it together. And that's a normal part of the process. And so it was just, it was a hard conversation, but it was also so beautiful because I felt like I didn't want to be the right person for the job. That's not the story that I asked for, but it's the story that I have. And it's the story that I can use for good. And the story that I can use to equip these kids and give them hope and give them strength, you know? Right. So actually we're going to talk about grief for a little bit because I think this is very important. So recently for me, I'm sorry, I have a puppy. And <laughs> I love she, puppies. She is walking around everywhere. Everyone. Gigi, I am sorry. Just made the podcast a thousand times better. I love puppies. Yeah, she's she's making an entrance. I wasn't expecting it. So if you saw me like going like this, I was trying to just. No, I love it. Let her in the camera. Yeah. What's her name? Gigi. G-I-G-I. So cute. So let's talk about grief for a second. And we're going to touch on it as both your experience as an adoptee or through the foster care system, how you, how you dealt with it. And I also want to touch on it for what you just said about being a parent and helping your children cope with that. Because for me, I just lost, it's just me now. I lost my, 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 uh, my adoptive mother very recently, um, in July. And 
for me, our relationship was kind of tumultuous. It wasn't always sunshine and rainbows because I remember how she changed and I was able to get to a point where I've forgiven her for different things where before I didn't understand. And to reference something you said much earlier about when you're young, you don't really have the ability to properly process. It's something that kind of begins in your teens and works all throughout your adult age. And I agree with that so wholeheartedly. For, for those of us experiencing potential grief, I feel when we're adopted, we experience it early because we're grieving the loss of a family that we wanted or we, we thought we, we should have had. And moving forward, once your adoptive parents kind of pass, I feel it can go one of two ways where you understand everything that has happened and not, not have come to terms with it, but you have this sort of deeper understanding of why maybe things have happened the way they did and how those things made you a stronger person. They made you resilient. They made you into the person that you are today versus carrying such anger, carrying such hatred. For, so we're going to go back really quickly talking about grieving. When, when you lost your mother, was there any sort of anger? Like, you know, because you're saying grief kind of, it's an unwelcome guest. It just kind of shows up at the door of your mind and it barges in. It doesn't knock. It's just there. And, yeah. you know, just really briefly walk me through that as an adoptee before we talk about it as, as a parent and what parents can do to move forward and help their children as well. Yeah. I, like I said, I was 17. It was very uh, tragic, very sudden, her death. And I, you know, I didn't go to therapy. Therapy wasn't really in our language. I, I didn't even think about it, to be honest. I just, I cried a lot and then I moved on. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't know until much later, really, I didn't have the tools to process it until much later. Let's just say that. Right. So I think that, uh, you know, I missed a week of school, went to the funeral, you know, and here's one really impactful thing for me. Um, and that this is what ended up playing to me finding faith later in college was it was uh, right after her funeral. I was sitting at my dad's kitchen table and he, I had moved in with him temporarily before I was going off to college in Vancouver, Washington. And so I was spent a short stint with him and I was sitting on the kitchen table, just trying to process, you know, when you, when you lose a loved one, you start to ask questions you've never asked yourself before, you know, about the afterlife or where is she? And all that stuff. It just, you never really have to think about it until you're like, am I ever going to see this person again? Right. Right. I'm at my dad's kitchen table and I'm sobbing and there's just tears running down my face. And I had never prayed before in my life. God was not a part of our vocabulary. I never went to church. There was no form of spirituality. Like it just wasn't there. I didn't even know if I was supposed to introduce myself. I didn't know how to pray or meditate. I didn't know any of it. I just, I knew nothing. It was a blank slate. But I just thought, you know, I am totally desperate right now. I am grieving right now. And I, I just need answers. And so I prayed for the first time in my life. And, and so I just prayed, I, I just a really short, short prayer, like, God, would you just show me that everything's going to be okay? Like, I just needed that much. Just would you just show me? And so 
at the very moment, which is such a short prayer, but that very moment that I prayed my first prayer, my dad came in and he walked in from work and he flopped this envelope in front of me. It was a pink envelope. And he said, I'm so sorry. This has been at my office for a really long time. I've kept forgetting to give it to you. It has your name on it. And then he walked away, he did something else. And it had my name on it, it had no return address on it. And it had my dad's work office, uh, work address on it. So this is the end of March, maybe beginning of April at this point. And when I open it up, it's very clearly a Valentine's card. So it had been sitting in his office since February. And at that moment, I opened it up and it is a Valentine's card from my mom. And it said, I know we don't always see eye to eye, but we'll always see heart to heart. And I love you. And I'm so proud of you. And it was just like this moment of everything that I wanted to hear, needed to hear it wasn't too late to hear it. And it was, it blew my mind. And so I didn't know how to piece together what had just happened because I know that that's a really unusual experience, but it wasn't until later until college that I was able to, to really get involved with different people who could show me who God was and and teach me more about, yeah, just all of that. But that was the moment that I think for me, I was like, God's real. Like Mm -hmm. God is real. No one can tell me that that was a coincidence. So um, I think the grieving, the therapy came later. The grieving would pop up. Christmas time was really hard because it was her favorite holiday. And I would just remember she would go all out for Christmas. And so it took me a really a long time to enjoy Christmas again. And it wasn't really until the, the birth of my firstborn, who was born in December, that I was able to bring her home from the hospital. And now all of a sudden, what used to represent death to me represented life. But that was that was a, a long, a long time, many years of not enjoying Christmas because uh, grief would always knock around that time. And so I think just for anyone who still has that happen, just know that it, it doesn't have to be forever, but there really is a lot of strength in just validating those emotions and taking the time you need to go process it and cry it out and journal it and pray it and, you know, do what you need to do to, to, to honor those, that wave, because it is a wave. I feel like we're, we're afraid that it's going to last forever and it comes in waves, honor the wave, ride the wave when it comes. And, and, you know, rather than suppressing it, because if you suppress it, it's going to explode at some point, you know, that's, it's just going to pop up like a beach ball. And so I would just say for, for anyone walking that road, just, just honor it when it comes, ride the wave of the emotion and it's okay. And it's normal for it to come really unexpectedly uh, when you're not, you know, you weren't planning it. You can't always plan it. You know, we know, we know the certain holidays that are going to be hard, but there are some moments when something triggers it and it's just, it's just going to be hard. It's okay. It's a normal part of the process. And it's a part of how we just continue to honor them in our mind and honor those emotions when they come. So as an adoptive parent, What can other adoptive parents do to support their adoptive child who might be grieving? What are, what are some ways that you plan to help you to support your children? Yeah, that's a great question. I remember recently my, my daughter was struggling with something and she said, I was afraid to tell you because you've been telling me that I've been doing so good with my emotions and my anxiety lately. And I said, Addie, I'm cheering you on, of course, when you're doing better in those areas. But the the goal is not that we become bulletproof emotionally. We are not human if that happens. I don't expect you to not have an anxious day or an anxious thought or a time where you need to cry or a time when 
I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the goal. So don't get me wrong here. She wants to be so strong, right? She's like, oh, I'm just saying that I'm proud of you because when you first got here, you were having panic attacks every day. You were, you know, every day was a roller coaster of emotions. And so now it's leveled out to a little bit more of a normal, like, you know, pace, I guess, or a normal rate of uh, when the grief pops up or when we're anxious and when we need to honor those emotions. And so I think for me, I was just encouraging her, like the goal, the goal is not that we don't have hard emotions. That's just not a realistic goal. Uh, we're, we're never going to be emotionally bulletproof, but, um, but the goal is, yeah, you don't want to spend every day of your life in panic attacks. You don't want to spend every day of your life all day, every day grieving like that, you know, there's seasons for that when it's really hard, but that's not how we ultimately want to walk forward and live every day. And so I would just say like, obviously giving them the space that they need to honor those emotions and making sure that they know that the goal is not uh, perfect emotions. The goal is not to be happy all day, every day. Like that's just unrealistic for even people who haven't been through trauma, right? Like it's just a normal part of the human experience to have hard moments and hard days. And so just encouraging them. We obviously have our kids um, in therapy. There's a really great program called HeartSync, which is like kind of like parts work, but it, it incorporates prayer into that. They've been really impacted by that. I've been really impacted by that. So we incorporate that. They have said the thing that helps them the most is just us talking with them now. So that's really cool to be able to know that we know, I know what they've been through. And to some degree, Brandon knows my husband, what they've been through. And so to talk to somebody who understands. And so even if let's say the, the, the parent doesn't have experience with adoption, make sure that you find a community of people where that, that language is normal. We specifically chose this campus of our church because there's a huge foster and adoptive care adoptive community and they do foster parent nights out, adoptive night outs for the parents. And they know walking into church that they're, that language is normal. Like they're not the oddball. Like I always felt like when I was a teenager, like it was, it was hard for me to explain why I lived with my best friend. Like I hated that feeling of having to explain why my situation was different. But I think that if we, if we are able to give them connections with other people who understand what they're going through, they're not going to feel so alone in it. And I know my situation is a little unique with both my husband and I having a direct adoptive adoption experience. But I would just say like, in any way that you can, like connecting them to their heritage, connecting them to their culture, if it's an international adoption, keeping them connected there, keeping them connected with other people who can help them feel like they're not the only one in their whole world that's adopted, you know, or that's was in foster care. And so I think that that provides so much strength, especially for my adopted daughter. She's a little older, so she's able to communicate it a little bit more. But she, I was listening to her talk to her friends the other day. And I was like, who is she talking to? I thought she was talking about a celebrity, like the way that she was like, and then this and then that. And then after she got off the phone call, I said, who are you talking about on that phone call? I thought it was going to be like Selena Gomez or something like that. And she was like, oh, I was talking about you, mom. And sweetest thing. I was like the way that I've been able to be a hero in her little life because she sees me like living out the life that is possible for her, like a healthy being, becoming a good mom, loving family life, not addicted to drugs. Like that was her whole paradigm, you know, before she entered foster care. And, and unfortunately they had some abusive foster homes as well. And so to, to her, to see like, 
you came from what I came from. You had similar, you know, upbringing, similar situations, but like, this is the life that you've made. Like it is so empowering for her. So I think that anytime that we can expose them to people that are good role models in their life or that are, um, understand the language of adoption, understand the language of some of the things that they've been through. It just really helps them to not feel so alone. So to close the episode, what is one piece of advice that you wished that you could have heard when you were going through everything? What is the piece of advice that you would give now to a future and other adopters based off of what you have? That's a great question. I feel like when I was in college and there was a scripture that I read that just said, though my mother and father forsake me is the Lord that took me in and the Lord that sheltered me. And it was this moment where I just felt like I I really am not alone. Like I, I am cared for, I am loved. And I would say to anyone that has not felt that from an earthly mother or an earthly father, or that relationship has been ruptured and has been broken. You are, you are loved you are not alone. So that's first and foremost, because that, that was something that really, really carried me through, really helped me so much. Um, and so that was beautiful, but also just that you can, you are not stuck in any area. I read this book called mindset and it changed my life because I didn't have, uh, the idea in my head that I could just, that I could grow, that I could improve, that I could change, that I could blossom, that I could take an area of weakness and make it a strength. Like that to me wasn't in my, my paradigm. Um, and so to, to just know that you are, there's never a lid on your life. There is never a lid. And anytime that you feel that way, like being really proactive to change the narrative, because if you can change the narrative for yourself, you can change it for your kids. You can change it for the next generation. You can break that cycle of feeling like you are, you are stuck and you're never going to change, or you're never going to be able to amount to anything, or you're never going to be able to do this or accomplish this because of what you've been through, because that, that feeling is real. Like I always felt like I just had a disadvantage, right? All these other kids from normal families, like they had an advantage. They had a leg up. They had something that I didn't, they had parents, financial support. They had parents in the stadiums cheering them on. They had parents like I could go on and on about all the ways that I felt either disqualified or that I just didn't have the same advantages. And that, and that, that could be true. And I didn't have the same advantages, but to know that there is no lid that, that it, it, it doesn't actually exist. It's, it's only in your, your, your mind because of what you've been through, but it's actually not there. Like you can continue to excel and grow and improve and thrive and, and just continue to become the best version of yourself. Like that, that is absolutely something that I believe that has changed my life. So I think that those would be the two things that have really been a strength for me. I love that. I love that we're ending on such a a positive note. So I just want to say thank you for joining me on this first episode of Chats with Cats. Technically, it's the second. So that's exciting. A special thank you to our guest, Melissa. Stay tuned for another episode of Chats with Cats every other Wednesday on the Voice of Adoptees podcast. Always remember that someone somewhere is thinking of you and you are not alone.